welcome to the Happy Whole You podcast. I'm Anna Marie Frank, your brain health and wellness expert. Here we talk about all things wellness with a focus on how your brain functions. So the daily impact of our physical, nutritional, financial, even spiritual lives, how they impact our brain, including how we navigate all of our relationships on a daily basis, all have a major impact on how our brain functions. So get ready to rewire your biology and your brain because we have a lot of great information ahead. Judy, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you for asking. Let's just jump right in. And if you could share with the listeners, when we talk about different types of healing different ways of healing medicine, traditional Chinese medicine and naturopathy, naturopathy. Can you just kind of go through and give us the bullets of what they are and kind of like the differences between them? Okay. You having worked with me in some courses are aware of uh, my background as an English teacher. So you will understand that I tend to uh, grasp the semantics One of the things that I try to explain to people from the very beginning is that healing resides within the individual. It is not within the modality. The modalities that we talk about, homeopathy, naturopathy, within naturopathy are a number of other modalities, such as traditional Chinese medicine, which is some 6,000 years old, as is Ayurveda, based in India at least as old, if not older than traditional Chinese medicine. So these are practices that help the human body achieve the appropriate balance so that it can heal itself. Homeopathy, as mentioned, is often considered to be an umbrella modality, and it is not. It it is actually strictly frequency medicine. It has to do with substance being removed, and it is based on the law of similars, popularized by Samuel Hahnemann. So homeopathy is a component, as are the flower essences, most popularly known as Bach flowers, as well as many others. And then within naturopathy are also the herbals, nutrition, diet. I like food choices because when we get into diet and nutrition, we actually start wandering into practices that are licensed by other practitioners. So we actually talk to people about food choices. And you're, I know, familiar with that because you're very solid on how we use our words. So those are some of the things. We are using these as tools to empower people to achieve their own levels of healing. Is that generic enough? (laughs) Yes, I I love it all. And when we talk about foods when I'm working with people, we, t- we sometimes we call it an experiment, right? Nice. So they, they play with their foods, but we call it an experiment because one, nobody likes the word diet. I don't like to, I don't like to be on a diet, but yeah, I mean, we call that die to a T. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And being very careful with our words, it's in the United States with what we do, we do not practice medicine. We do not diagnose. We do not prescribe in naturopathy. And what we do do is we help people with their foundations of health, which sometimes have impact on the things that are coming up for them in the Western world with their, with their doctor. So could you kind of step into and share a little bit about naturopathy and how it has shifted. I mean, I think it's, what was it, from 18, 
1983 to 1901 and kind of how it's progressed, regressed, progressed again over the last 120 years in this country? Naturopathy was actually under attack earlier than that. In approximately the 1500s, there was a movement to get rid of what was referred to, I think, at the time as folk medicine and traditional therapies because they were not scientific enough. So there were practitioners at that point who were already kind of going after that. And it continued. There were peaks and valleys. There was uh, this rise and fall. And then in the 1800s that you're referring to, I believe you are referring to the death of eclecticism, which was Samuel Thompson was an American herbalist. And he attempted to educate people to take care of themselves. And he taught herbology, herbalism to anybody who would listen. And this did not play well with some of the fields that wanted to be licensed. So when Thompson stepped away, it the eclectic collective at that point, which included trepans and herbalists and homeopaths, began to disintegrate a bit because some of them actually wanted to pursue licensure. So they began to lose their lobby, essentially. I mean, it wasn't considered a lobby at the time, but it was strength in numbers, and there were a number of them. But after a while, uh, they began to fall away, and then there was a little bit of discussion within. And as you know, when the breakdown comes from within an organization, it becomes very easy for another philosophy to pick them off pretty much one at a time, and that's what happened. Then in uh, 1910... Abraham Flaxner, who was with uh, Johns Hopkins, I believe, I'd have to check that again, but I believe that's right, was contracted to develop a report about the condition of medical schools in the United States. And there were both pros and cons that came out of that, because one of the things that happened from the Flexner report and the driving forces I'm assuming we'll call it the monetization or the monetary support of that came from Rockefeller and Carnegie, but it targeted medical schools that were perhaps substandard and even by any standards, they were being taught by people who who really were not properly educated. Medical doctors hit underfunded medical schools and essentially made the teaching. There is a chapter in that called the medical sects. S-E-C-T-S, lest anybody misunderstand that, but the chapter on that called The Medical Sects discusses how homeopathy and naturopathy and herbalism, flower essences, hydrotherapy, any kind of energy medicine, all of that was then purged. And that is when they fell away because botanical medicine used to actually, people could graduate and practice as a licensed medical doctor with botanical medicine. And that continued for a while, but eventually it fell away in the early 1900s. So it essentially sounded the death knell for naturopathy as it was being practiced at the time. It actually had a a kind of a sad effect in that it limited minorities and women in medical schools because the schools that many of them were attending were not able to stay in business. And then all the medical schools essentially went to become part of some of the major universities. And that's where you see it now. And the standards increased considerably, but the exclusion 
of any and all naturopathic practice was also an end result. There was no compromise, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, like, what's crazy is there used to be some, I think it was like in the 1920s, there used to be like over 20 naturopathic medical schools in now, I mean, I don't know, is there like five? There are six in, there are six in North America that yeah. are naturopathic medical. And these are even different. The naturopathic schools to which you refer are very different than, than the six right. that are the CNME. Yeah. Uh, can you, can, and this is, this is great because I think people really need to hear this and know the difference between a true naturopath and ND, a natural doctor and an MD. So can you kind of share with everyone what the differences are? Super simple. As you know, yeah. you know the definition there. Traditional naturopaths, those that began as NDs, naturopathic doctors, do not pierce the skin in any way. We don't draw blood. We don't ask for blood to be drawn. We don't do IVs. This is a misconception. There are a number of Uh, people who say they go to NDs with the designation. We are, we're certified designation. When we teach, for example, we are teaching a profession, a practice, and we teach people, you don't cut on people. So there is no surgery involved. There are some historical naturopaths that we study and encounter Dr. Edward Bach for one who got out of surgery because he believed that surgery was it did not really have a place in healing. We all know that sometimes surgeries are necessary. So this is not anti-surgery. But naturopaths don't don't do surgeries. They don't do surgeries, they don't give injections, they don't draw blood and they don't prescribe anything that is a, could be a chemical poison. And and, and that's really about I... as simple as as it gets. Those yeah. are uh, the precepts of naturopathy as established by Benedict Lest and prior to that, a few others, but those are the, those are the ones. Yes. Yes. And that's, that is, main, that's your main difference. And so then the, the six schools that we're referring to that have survived and are, are more, they actually are medical natural doctors. I they're guess integrated. Like. Yes. They're yeah. integrated. Mm-hmm. So they will pierce the skin and do IVs and things like that, correct? They are taught that. And again, having not participated in the curriculum, I would never discount or deem to comment their curriculum per se. But I do know for a fact that some of the graduates that I know well, who have come from those schools did uh, receive instruction on those things. Now, some of them opt out of it. Some of them opt not to recommend or give any kind of injections or do any kind of surgery. I want to make sure that people understand that just because somebody graduated from one of those doesn't necessarily mean that they're out poking holes in people. Mm-hmm. So that's, that would be a bit of a generalization. I don't want to go there. It is, inte- it is integrated medicine that is taught. And then I think everybody knows what a MD is a medical doctor. And so I think, I think we're good there. So, yeah. So I just, I think it's important for people to kind of know the difference between, you know, how all these practitioners practice 
you know, I think ultimately at the end of the day, based on, you know, our education, like I, I do believe that no matter what umbrella you fall under, you, I would hope that you're trying to help people ultimately and, and help them with their health and just become healthier and happier and, and better. So let's see where, what else did I want to talk about today? What am, well, I think, well, this is a, a big point that you like to get across about naturopathy being like a new age type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. It's so, it's so incredibly not. It's old. It's old, old. I mean, it's Hippo- Hippocrates. It's pre-Hippocrates old. So it is. All naturopathy is, is making use of the resources that are put on this earth around us and understanding how they impact. And it can be something as simple as knowing that you can reset your circadian rhythms, your sleep cycle by going outside and standing in the dirt and watching the sunset a few nights in a row. And that is, that doesn't get anybody any money. Nobody makes anything in stock on that at all. You can't bottle it. You can't sell it. You can't prescribe it, but you can suggest it. And it is uh, by all means a component. One of my favorite phrases that I use with people is they'll go, what should I take for this? What should I take for this? I don't like take. I don't, I, I don't think naturopathy is about take. I think naturopathy is about do. Yeah. And it, it, if you do certain things, which we know as the foundations, right? Mm-hmm. Eat real food, sleep well during good healing hours. And there are specific hours that are more beneficial than others, but sometimes we can't avoid. Drink an appropriate amount of water. We have specific water choices, as you know, that we like because we like water to go in at cellular level and move. We we need to move. We've got to do something because we have a huge system in our bodies called the lymphatic system that does absolutely nothing for us if we don't move. And all of those are components of naturopathic practice and they have nothing to do with what we take. Yeah, that is sunlight. Yeah, that's what to me, that's what makes it not new age. Right. Not like when we're resetting circadian rhythms, we're out praying to the moon God or anything like that. That's not what's happening. We are simply all connected. And I don't think anybody really can disagree with that. That is a thing. We already know that's a thing because, well, tides, tides happen and they are influenced by the moon cycles and anybody that's been on a beach has watched all of this go on. And, and we know how it feels when we put our feet in the surf, in the sand. We know that this stuff all happens. We are all energetic beings. And that is not a weird new age concept. That's a thing. We're electrical. When our electricity goes out, we're done, right? If we weren't electrical, we couldn't get shocked when we got stupid and stuck a fork in the socket or something like that. So all of those things are true. They are science, they are physics, and and we are very scientific, which I find also equally as disturbing when people think we don't believe in science. And we absolutely do. It is it is all about science for us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm on my soapbox there. Can you tell? I love it. I love it when you get on your soapbox. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's like, I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's just interesting how, you know, the Western world, how, you know, it can be, it's like, Oh, what is this voodoo kudu stuff that they're doing? And it's like, (laughs) 
Well, what do you think they did like 5,000 years ago? What do you think we did 150 years ago before we had all of these synthetic drugs and equipment and and all of this stuff? So it's kind of like, I don't know. It's just, it's kind of silly. And then I, I'll never forget the first time that I learned in one of the classes about where the word quack actually truly yeah. came from. And it just... I mean, it's like, okay, but it just goes to show how we're programmed to think, you know, I, I was programmed to think that a quack was somebody like myself, right? Go stand barefoot on the ground, you know, go yep. let the sunshine hit your face without sunscreen on for 10 minutes, you know? Exactly. Can you share with everyone where the word quack actually originated from? Uh, Probably not right now without <laughs> looking at my notes. So you might well, want to I'll, cut I'll this out. <laughs> Why don't so, you share? Okay. So I wrote about it, but I I don't have it right now. It was just, well, it was like one of those things that was just brief and it just stuck with me. You know what I mean? It might not be that big a deal to other people, but so it was interesting because way back in the day, like in the last hundred years, people would go to medical doctors, Western medical doctors, and when they were ill and they would get this silver concoction and it was full of heavy metals and they would drink it it would make them quack like a duck. I think it was like a mercury drink, if if I'm correct. That is, it was a mercury drink. Mm-hmm. Yes. And people would kind of like quack like a duck or, or whatnot. And so then they people would be like, well, don't, don't go see those quacks. And that was literally medical doctors. And then there was this big push where they, there was money put behind it, where it was like, we don't serve, you know, we don't have that. So we don't do the silver drink anymore. Come back. And it was a collection of people to kind of, you know, promote medical doctors again. But I just think it was kind of interesting. Like, how did that get turned around on, you know, people that are you know, saying eat herbs and <laughs> it, it's anything, anything like that. The It's like kind of like the term snake oil salesman. Yeah. When, you know, when they would, the claims would be made in the wild, wild west about <laughs> this cure all it would be they would be accused basically of just using snake oil putting it in in bottles and calling it a a life giving elixir kind of thing so this is not uh, these terms these derogatory terms mm-hmm. are not new so that's kind of an interesting it, it's an interesting comment so whether you're snake oil salesman whether you're involved in new age or I know that when, when crystals stones come up, there tends to be a lot of, of uh, clutching of the pearls over that. And that is, that's a, there's a great blog on that called it's not new. It's true that Beth Hovis wrote uh, connecting the biblical references to the stones, to the crystals and the stones. So mm-hmm. It, it's it does I think anything that skews what we call allopathy, which is Western medicine, anything that skews away from allopathy tends to be viewed as as unscientific. And in reality, it, it, we have geology, we have botany, we have physics. Physiology is a huge component of naturopathy. Their uh, nutrition is a, is a science. So all of these things, physics is huge. Physics is a huge part of what it is that we do. So all of these things are legitimate science. When people ask me about bark flowers and homeopathy and they go, oh, what the physics? And they go, you know what? I went to a pretty good 
private university and I took two semesters of physics and it counted as a science. (laughs) So it must be Uh, since it counted as science credits at a really good school where I got my four year degree before I was a teacher, a high school teacher then I I tend to think it must be a legitimate science. So that's why a lot of this confuses me because I'm ridiculously logical. I spent years in automotive engineering and none of this is weird or woo-woo to me. It's all super basic. So I don't find it odd or new age or woo-woo. I love woo-woo. That's a great term. (laughs) The whole crystals thing. So I I was at an event and I had some crystals there and, you know, just talking about them and everything. And then this lady just looked at me and she goes, well, I'm a Christian. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, okay, great. Me too. <laughs> and yeah. It's like, you know, it's just, but it's just interesting, you know, when, because it's like, you can't, I guess when people have their opinions, they have their opinions and, you know, it's not, it's not my job to make, you know, to educate them on all of this and, and all of that, like, you know, but it's just interesting, the stereotypes that we have or the, these ideas that we have that were like, I'm thinking to myself, like, where did this come from? You know, like with, I mean, I've been in, in wellness for 20 years and it was like, I first started telling everyone just to exercise as if that would solve all their problems. Then I was like, Oh, you got to eat soup, you know, you got to eat healthy. And then it was like, okay, exercising, eating healthy, but why do I still not feel right? Oh, wait, no, I got to take care of my energy and, you know, my mindset. And like, there's all these layers of, you know, your foundations of health that you need Mm -hmm. to pay attention to. And it's never just one thing. And, but I think we are used to that one quick fix or the idea that there is that one fix. And it's almost like, I call it the one quick cover up, you know? (laughs) Nice. Magic pill, magic potion. Right. One pill makes you larger, one pill makes you small. Yeah. Yeah. You said something really key just a minute ago. So I'm going to bring it back up again. It's not your job to convince. And I think that's crucial because I, one of the things that I have found and I, I learned early in my career, I'm about 23 plus years into this. And one of the things that I learned is as I began to embrace natural health, I thought it was my job to educate everybody. And I thought it was my job to convince people. And there was a man who came into my store because I started with the natural health store and he came into my store and he wanted to know why natural stuff would be better than medical stuff than the, than the pharmaceutical stuff. And I genuinely embraced that as I needed to own that and answer that. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to argue with me and he was an angry man and, and he, and we, and we fought about stuff in my store. And then he, he left. I found out later that he died of liver cancer, Oh, which was a shame, mm-hmm. but I thought, well, there's anger. There's some anger there possibly and fear. He was probably terrified. I, I also was mad at myself because I didn't listen to him. I didn't listen to him. I, I jumped immediately into a defense, a defensive posture and started explaining myself and, and trying to sell my side. Mm-hmm. And it was a tremendous lesson in humility. And I, I've learned over the years that when people are in a conversation and I happen to be in the same area, 
then it's not my job to jump in and make suggestions. Mm -hmm. So if somebody asks me, I might answer a little something and I might ask another question or two and maybe answer a little bit more. But in general, it's not my job to, to do that. And, and there are people in our field, as you know, who believe that it's their job. They believe they're compelled to, to go help people. I'm here to help people. I am a healer. And I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't believe we are healers. I think that is uh, taking on a, a gift that we don't necessarily have within ourselves. It's I'm never going to heal another person ever. Yeah. I, I think we're facilitators. I we think. are facilitators. And I love that we're yeah. facilitators. We're educators and we pass the information that we know with our resources. Mm-hmm. So people can do more research on their own or they can get more education. And if they want more education, then we need to be there and be available and we need to empower them. But I'm never going to heal anybody. Right. I'm never going to heal anybody. I don't heal my dog. My dog healed herself based on stuff that I was able to provide, but I didn't heal her. So yeah. I don't know. It's a, it's a <laughs> lesson and, and they continue. The lessons continue daily. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think deep down, especially like with 2020 and just the whole collective, oh, I don't know, anger, fear, so much energy out there with everything going on and worry. People will come to me and it's interesting because I'll have some people that come and they're like, you know, they don't know why they're here other than their wife holding a come or whatever. And <laughs> they, just, they don't want to tell me a word, but they want to just, you know, just sit there. I do the biofeedback and I'm like, okay, you, you know, you don't have to share with me anything that you don't want to share me, but there's a lot that we do by, you know, iridology, by physical observations, looking at the face, the tongue, the nails, using these different modalities to just see where their foundations of health are. And it's like, well, yeah, if, if, you know, they have the liver markings on the, on the size of the tongue, and then, you know, you have the eyebrows or the face markings, and Mm -hmm. then this person is, seems pretty angry. It might be a time to support the liver. And so it is, it is interesting, but I do think deep down people are questioning how they've been, you know, educated to treat, treat their bodies. They want something that's more holistic, They want something that's more natural. And, you know, and I think that, you know, that's where it's important that we facilitate that. And it's, it's not, we're trying to take away from what they're getting from their Western doctor or anything like that. I mean, in a perfect world, I'd love to work hand in hand with, you know, what they're working on with their medical doctor and and what we're, how we're supporting their foundations here. But I do think more people are awakening to what we are doing and it's not a new age thing, but what we're doing that has been thousands of years old that is now resurfacing. And I think, you know, some good things with that are, you know, there is social media that is great. So there's more platforms for, you know, naturopaths and homeopathy to just be out there and, you know, traditional Chinese medicine to be out there. So, so that's, I think, great that there is education more at people's fingertips, but I do think more people are searching for this, but at the same time, you're right. We're not here. We're not here to heal them. They will heal themselves, but we can help facilitate, you know, that or point them in the right direction of other practitioners that can help them improve their health 
educate to choice is one yeah. of my favorite phrases, educate to choice. The more people are educated, the more choices open up for them. And I liked what you said a few minutes ago when you were talking about the triangulation. I'll clarify that because you know what I mean by that. But that is you see the scalloping on the edges of the tongue. And we know from physical observations, traditional Chinese medicine, that the edges of the tongue are in the liver gallbladder map. So we see that scalloping. In addition, we also know that that means that there's a dehydration issue because the tongue has hypertrophied. The tongue has swollen because it really is looking for some more water. So we know a couple of things when we see that. Then we look on the face, we see the liver lines. Then we note that we have maybe some angry behavior. Maybe we find out that the person has had an ongoing rash that they can't explain. It just kind of, and they call it, oh, this angry rash just keeps breaking out. Mm -hmm. But when you put three things together like that, we in naturopathy, we refer to that as triangulating. And it is not a diagnostic. It's simply us putting pieces together to to say this is an area we would like to pay attention to. You add iridology to it. You're going to see some other things in the iris. You listen to the person talk. People go, how do I do a bioflower consultation? You just listen. Yeah. <laughs> you just uh, sit down and go, hey, thank you for making time to be here. You obviously have some questions. How is it that you think I can help you? What what is it that I can I can help you with today? And then you listen. Mm-hmm. And that is when you learn thing most of what it is that you need to know. They come to us to be heard because they probably are not sure that other people are listening. Now that is not a direct hit on allopathy. I w- have worked with some fabulous medical doctors who were very comfortable referring people to me. And I've been very comfortable sending people back to them. So those relationships do exist, Mm -hmm. but education is key and credibility is key and the ability to recognize one another's strengths and acknowledge them and not just bash. I get a lot of bashing and I I don't bash any profession. If somebody has taken the time and the effort to go through education in their profession, kudos. That's good stuff. So Mm -hmm. trying to work together is, is the tough part, but you're right here we are. And I, and I had to, it's funny because here's a callback to your reference to quack. Yeah. If it walks like a duck has feathers and quacks, it either is a duck or it thinks it's a duck. Mm -hmm. Either way, it's the face you see. It's Mm -hmm. that it's the person in front of you talking with you at the moment. And that is who you're working with right now. You're not necessarily working with their family history and you're not necessarily working with a bunch of other numbers yet. You are working with the person who is sitting in the office with you or across the table from you or on a Zoom with you. You're working with the face you see. And that's so crucial. So I'm so glad you brought up the triangulation because that sums up to anybody listening to this exactly how nature paths operate mm-hmm. it's like the best education to add to what i've been doing over the years 
everything I went through with, with Trinity and I mean, just everything. It just, and it's made a huge, huge difference in one, how I support my clients and two, the results that my clients are getting. It's, it's incredible. It's really incredible. And even myself, like, you know, the things I've been able to do to improve my health and my children and my husband, I mean, it's like, my only issue that I have now is like when I'm talking to people and I'm like looking at their eyes and I'm looking at their tongue. Watch that. Yeah. <laughs> looking at their eyes, trying to get a, get a glimpse of the tongue there. It's like, Oh, wow, you see, those are some thin lips with some real high cheekbones, pale <laughs> complexion, tight, smooth forehead. Gotta be a metal. Gotta be yeah. a metal there. So, yeah. Yeah. It's hard. So yeah, so I don't look at people the same anymore, but hard to watch HD movies too. Yes. Yes. And then what's really, okay. So this is another thing, you know, just like, for example, like some famous people that, you know, it's like, oh, he's good looking. And then I'm like looking at him talk and I'm seeing this huge crack down the middle of his tongue and his tongue doesn't, I'm like, oh wait, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, like you just, it's just interesting because I don't know. It's just funny. So those of you that are listening, you're probably like, what are you guys talking about? But we're, it's, it's just, we know. It's interesting <laughs> stuff. It's, it's information yeah. because what we do is gather information and mm-hmm. it's not all, we're so indoctrinated. We're so, it's so ingrained in us that we gather information by a a stick from blood. And I'm not saying blood tests aren't great. Blood tests are great snapshots in time. Gathering information just from listening to somebody, watching somebody's face, it, it allows you to ask the appropriate questions. I had an experience in California many years ago when I was doing Bach flower consultations and I was doing these real rapid fire quick ones, like 15 minutes, And I was uh, in a booth at the Health Freedom Expo for Trinity. And one of the gentlemen that came in wanted a a blend and he had done the real quick version of the questionnaire. But I was more interested in talking to him because he couldn't seem to make a decision about how he was or what his concerns were. So I happened to look up and between his eyebrows, I saw a couple of markings that said to me gallbladder and gallbladder is an organ that tends to be tied to indecision mm-hmm. or decision-making issues. So I asked him, I said, is this something that you have trouble with a lot is making a decision? And he took a breath and he goes, well, I'm a first responder and I am on the scene first and I tend to have to triage. So I have to make decisions all the time. And I really don't like to continue to make those in my personal life. Mm. And I thought that answered everything. I just threw the questionnaire on the floor because he had just explained to me and his face had given me a hint about what to ask. Mm. So all we do is make use of what we are aware of, what we, what we see, what we hear. And sometimes you just have to have to throw the mechanisms away and go with that. So I threw my mechanism on the floor and I sat and talked to the guy and I put a formulation together for him. He came by the next day and we had a chat, but that was all I needed to know. It's like, Hmm, gallbladder. I've always been told gallbladder is an indecision. And then I started just following the bunny trail. 
Yeah. yeah. Sometimes those, those bunny trails lead you to exactly, I didn't diagnose him. I was like, Oh, guys got gallbladder problems. Don't do anything like that. Right. Right. I just went with indecision and son of a gun. If he didn't just admit right there. Yeah. I have a hard time with that because I have to do it in my job and I don't like to do it in my personal life. I hate decisions. Yeah. I mean, the body is always speaking to us. It's just a matter of one, do we know what to look for to recognize what it's saying to us? And are we even looking and are we even listening? Because it is, it's always talking to us. And, you know, I always tell clients, like when you come to me, it's like, you're like this puzzle in a box. And then we like start talking and we just get the puzzle out and we start piecing it together to kind of like see what's going on, you know, and we get this beautiful picture by the time you leave and then you're left to do, to take the action. You're left to do the work, you know, baby steps. Yeah. Don't over, and we know we don't want to overwhelm. That's one of the things that I see a lot of nature paths do is just overwhelm. Do this, do this, do this, take this, do this, stop this. That's always a good one. Stop drinking coffee. Sorry. (laughs) Bucko, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Like a a couple cups of coffee a day, you're not going to stop them. Oh, well, drink dandelion tea instead. Yeah. I don't know if you're a coffee drinker or not. I do an espresso in the morning. And if you handed me a dandelion tea. (laughs) You'd be angry. Your liver would be mad. (laughs) My liver would be so upset. (laughs) So we have to, we've really gone to be rooted in reality. And yeah. that's why each, when, when people ask for protocols, I always get a little wound up on protocols. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have protocols. We have people. Yeah. And we have individuals and the individuals, uh, there's always going to be something that varies from person to person as it should. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I think distinguishes us in our practice, in our field is we're able to think about this individual, whereas let's say somebody's got really high salts, their sodium levels are super high, but you might, and you might want to go, Ooh, potassium, throw potassium at them. But if you do the RBTI, if you do the reams and they've got the high ureas, that's a big no, because mm-hmm. now you're going to hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. So knowing what balance is and knowing that maybe just the water for a while is the best way to go. Let's not take something to drop those. Let's just do the water and see if it doesn't kind of level out on its own. So yeah. no, you don't make much money recommending half your body weight in ounces of right. water, but it is, it's a, it's a tool. It's a life skill. You've now imparted a bit of information to somebody they might not have had before because maybe they were guzzling Pedialyte or Gatorade, right? which um. I saw in something recently as, as how to take care of yourself if you're sick at home. So anyway, but I digress. So I will stop doing that because I do that a lot. Uh, I know when I talk to like about electrolytes, it's like, well, where do you get your electrolytes? Oh, Gatorade or Pedialyte. (laughs) You can eat an apple. I mean, Yes. Any piece of fruit, most vegetables. Yes. Hello. Yes. But you know, that goes back to the power of advertisement. And I truly believe people are doing the best they can with the education level that they have and what they've been educated on. And like you said, when you are more educated, 
more aware, you can, you have more options, right? And so it's very, very important. I think, I think every person should have their own like natural path or someone they work with or traditional Chinese medicine doctor or something that is more not in, not necessarily not have to be in place of, but just to like kind of shift that perspective and shift that thinking, especially if you were raised in this whole, you know, Western world that you take a pill for everything. We talk about paradigm shifting all the time. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. one of the most difficult aspects to get away from take versus do. Mm-hmm. And um, paradigm shifting is difficult because they don't call it a model for nothing. And if you are raised in a certain model, interestingly, my mother, of all people, embraced everything I did. My dad, God love him, I miss him terribly, was in the ER every week for having trouble breathing or whatever, and eventually was given Coumadin, but he was allergic to it, which was already documented, and he actually had a brain bleed. He he bled out in the brain from the Coumadin, but he kept asking for help in ways other than I was able to assist. And it was very scary and frustrating and sad, but my mom adhered very closely. She didn't like the pills and didn't trust this and that. And, but she had some great doctors. So it's not a, it's not a comprehensive thing. It's not an and or she was able to embrace both, which I I thought was uh, very cool. And it's probably why she lived to be 88. So There are ways, I think, to become available to people as their own personal naturopath or, you know, voice of reason or whatever. And I think one of the the keys is not to rage against other establishments, but simply to know your science and to have reasons for suggesting the things that you do and not necessarily be uh, throwing out the next best magic potion. Those are the things that make me nervous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Magic potions. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Judy, thank you so much for today and your time and your knowledge and everything that you do, because I know you're helping so many people beyond just the clients that you see. I mean, with all of us who have gone through courses with you, it's just, I think it's just beautiful work that you're doing. So thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you so much for saying that. And I appreciate the opportunity to chat. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. Thanks for joining us today, you guys, on this Happy Whole You podcast. We are so stoked that you are listening. And if you have questions or want to reach out to us, you can always email us at info at happyholeyou.com. And you know where to find us at Happy Whole You on Facebook and at Happy Whole You on Instagram. So have a wonderful day. Have a great week. And we will see you soon.